Colossians chapter 1, where we will be and begin our reading this morning in verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your grace. We love you. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to open the word of God, to proclaim its truth as Christ is revealed therein. As we have gathered here this day, there are many, as we've already mentioned, that are away from us, those who are suffering loss and in grief, no doubt, stepped into eternity. Father, we pray for them and that your, your comfort as the God of all comfort might comfort them and that we as your body might comfort them. During these days, and as well, Lord, for those who are are away from us and travel, we pray that you might bring them back safely to us. Also, Father, we ask that you might be merciful and gracious towards them. And Lord, we are grateful again for the privilege it is to gather as we do. And I pray that we might meet together, edifying one another in truth and in love, as you have loved us. Father, may your Spirit use each of us to your glory and to your honor as we have met in this place today. And may your word, by the working of your spirit, may your spirit use it in every heart and life of everyone that is gathered, everyone who will even hear in the future, Lord, that your word unhindered and that it might do that work that you have purposed and accomplished it to do in every heart and in every life. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week we prayed purposefully for the Colossian believers. Paul prayed intently as we have seen spiritual growth of the church at Colossae. And Paul prayed not hoping for the will of God to be accomplished, but he prayed intentionally with hope or with confidence for that which he knew was the will of God. Now again, I believe that's important for us to consider because we, if we're not careful, uh, may spend much of our time in what we refer to as prayer in seeking God for things that we may even think possibly are His will, but not knowing this is His will, because His Word is necessarily distinctly declared it to be so. And yet, as we make such petitions known, if we are not careful, many times we spend much more time praying for what may be the will of God, not out of God's will per se, but just we're uncertain of God's will in this matter, rather than spending our time intentionally and purposefully in prayer of that which we know to be the will of God. And Paul does that in this letter to the church at Colossae, and he does it throughout his epistles, of course, as well. And so we see that Paul prayed with confidence, confidence meaning the word hope, meaning confidence, for that which he knew was the will of God, which was the spiritual growth and spiritual prosperity of the church at Colossae, of these individual believers making up this body of believers at Colossae. First, we saw the reason for Paul's moment. Verse 9, the verse, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, Paul writes, do not cease 
Paul is simply saying, because of this or for this reason. And what was this Paul says he prayed? Well, he explains that in verses 3 and 4. He said, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. So Paul was saying that continue to pray for you, that you mature, that you grow in the knowledge of God. And again, just to help remind you of the context of what is taking place, again, uh, Gnosticism, of course, is creeping its way into uh, the first century church. And, of course, that the questioning of who Christ was, who he is, or whether he even came at all. And so all of this, uh, all of this skepticism is present. And Paul is writing that they might grow in understanding the Lord's will and, in, and growing and increasing in the knowledge of God and seeing, of course, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul emphasized throughout this letter. Second, we saw the substance of Paul's prayer. Verse 9 goes on to say, And to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, the verb desire in this verse simply means to ask. And so then we would ask the question, for what is it that the Lord asked, or that Paul asked the Lord? For what reason did he make this prayer? He says, and to desire, and we ask, or I ask, that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding. Now, knowledge of his will in all wisdom and and these are three separate things that Paul mentions here, which are, he inseparably links together, but of course they are not just synonymous statements that are being made. So this morning we further examine Paul's prayer, and as we begin to consider last week uh, from verse 9, verse 10 in relation to that, and Paul desired that these truths be realized in these believers mature again in the knowledge of them. Now when I say God's will for them, I don't mean that in a subjective sense by any means. We're not saying that God had some specific will, of course, for the life of these believers at Colossae and Paul is praying, oh, that you might subjectively understand God's will. No, he's saying God's will for you, and that is a, a specific thing, but it is that they mature in the knowledge of God in Christ and increase in that knowledge and be grounded in the faith. That is God's will. That is the known will of God. And so that is... This. And so we see that there were, of course, skeptics, as I've mentioned, and the Gnostics, and while they were inundating these believers with questions and heresies as well, Paul was reminding them of the sufficiency and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was Paul's desire for the church. Look at verse 10 again with me. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Or we can also look at this, obviously, as so that, for this reason. So that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, understanding the truths of verse 9 is really critical to living in the truth of verse 10. And so I want us to go back to verse 9 again this morning. Though we dealt with this last week, I want us to go back to verse 9 as we continue through verses 10 and 11 to help better understand the importance of verses 10 and 11 and how we are to live in this truth. So look at verse 9 and we see first the prerequisites Paul provides to walk worthy of the Lord. Because that's what Paul is ultimately saying. Again in verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. And we'll deal with what that means in just a moment. But before we get to actually what Paul is saying and what this means, let's look at the prerequisites, what is first required for one to walk worthy unto all pleasing. How does that take place? We see in verse 9 again, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you 
and to desire to ask of the Lord that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So as we consider these prerequisites or the criteria, if you will, Paul had outlined in verse 9, we see that this is necessary for one to walk worthy of the Lord as Paul mentions in verse 10. Paul asked God to fill them in three ways. First, he said the knowledge of God's will. And the phrase knowledge of his will recognition of God's will. And we dealt with this last week. This is just saying we recognize God's will. He's saying that you might recognize the will of God, that you might be aware of this. But he said, and be filled with wisdom. And I told you Webster's 1828 dictionary defined wisdom as the right use or exercise of knowledge. And so knowledge that is not applied, as I said last week to you, is something that very often produces pride. Even as Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that they, they knew, uh, he says, we all have knowledge, but yet he goes on to explain that knowledge puffeth up. And so knowledge will fill one with pride if there is no wisdom present. If there is no understanding and application, if you will, of that knowledge, then it just makes one proud. Then he said, be also be filled with spiritual understanding. Understanding implies insight. So God alone is the source of of knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. And we must trust him to provide us insight to his will and to his truth. So to walk worthy of the Lord, as Paul outlines in verse 10, or declares in verse 10, he also provides in verse 9 these prerequisites. If one is to walk worthy of the Lord, one must be first filled with the knowledge of God's will, which is to recognize God's will. Number two, filled with wisdom, that is applying the knowledge. And this is spiritual wisdom. This isn't worldly Wisdom, it is God's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we know that also the reverence before him is wisdom. Christ has made wisdom unto us. And so it's applying that which we know, not just recognizing it. And by the way, let me pause here for a moment because I believe this is very important. I believe it's sad to say but true that many within the church today um, are spiritually ignorant. And it's very sad but true. But then those who aren't spiritually ignorant many times have knowledge but it does not mean they are walking in wisdom. So there are those who are spiritually ignorant, then there are those who do have knowledge but are not walking in wisdom, and then there are those who are not spiritually ignorant, who do have knowledge, spiritually speaking, and they are walking in wisdom. And therefore, that provides even further insight and growth and increasing in the knowledge of God, as we'll see in a moment. And so we understand, Paul goes on to say, spiritual understanding, which again implies this insight, and and being spiritual understanding is insight to live out God's will as well. So last week, someone actually was speaking to me after our study of verse 9, and it was mentioned that we see triune God present in this verse, to which I agreed and stated that we do see this. God the Father, knowledge of his will. Whose will is this? This is the Father's will. And in John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do nothing, or I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because, he goes on to explain, not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So when you find the will of uh, the knowledge of his will, he's talking about the will of God the Father, that we might be filled with the knowledge of God the Father's will. But then you see God the Son, when wisdom, well, why would you say that, you might ask. 1 Corinthians one thirty. remember what Paul wrote. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God the Father is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, when Paul makes that statement in 1 Corinthians 1, he's not simply saying or stating 
that we have wisdom from God in Jesus or some wisdom. He's saying Christ has made wisdom unto us. Christ has made sanctification unto us. Christ is made uh, righteousness unto us. Christ is made redemption unto us. So this is who Jesus is. It's not just what we get from him. It's by receiving Christ, we receive the very wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, the, the uh, sanctification of God that God works within. So see that he says, God the Son, here we sign wisdom, and then God the Holy Spirit, spiritual understanding. 12 through 14. Jesus speaking to his disciples prior to his death, burial, resurrection, he says, I have yet many things to you, but you cannot bear them now. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. So from Paul's request and his prayer recorded in verse 9, we conclude that we must have the knowledge The wisdom of God as provided in Jesus Christ and spiritual understanding or insight by the presence and of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us if we are to walk worthy of the Lord. So we have to have all of this present to walk worthy unto all pleasing. So second, I would ask the question then, what does it mean or, or answer what it means to walk worthy of the Lord? Look at verse 10, the beginning of the verse, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord. Having considered the prerequisites, as Paul listed them in verse 9, for walking worthy of the Lord, it's important also that we examine what it means then to walk On this language, in some form, used three times throughout the epistles in the New Testament within this context. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Well, who calls? It's God who calls. And so he's saying that you walk worthy of the life to which you are called. Now, that being stated, let us go back and just in, in, uh, to remind you of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 1 is the second division of the epistle in which the first division, if you recall, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are all about Paul explaining our position in Jesus Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 are all about the, the practical living out of that truth of who God has made us to be in Jesus, who Jesus is to us, and who God has made us to be in him. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, it's very fitting then that Paul would say, he would beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation where we, because of this position we have in Christ. Then Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, as we've read this morning. Then 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12. Paul wrote that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. And in each of these verses, we find the context is that we are to walk in a certain manner according to that which God has done. So to walk worthy of the Lord means to live in a worthily manner of the Lord and the provision that he has made. Now, that still may not be totally clear, but let me simplify it for you. We are to live according to God's grace. We are to live according to God's mercy. We are to live according to God's love. And we are to live according to God's power as he has provided this for us in the person of his son. 
So when Paul says to walk worthy, he's not saying that somehow now we can merit that which was unmerited. He's not saying, oh, after grace, now you can earn or, or, or you can deserve, get to a point in your life to where you now spiritually deserve grace. Remember, Romans, Galatians makes it very clear, of course, that, that this is not of works, but by grace, and that is the unmerited favor, kindness, or goodness of God that is not deserved, could never be deserved. And if it were deserved, then if we're not wrecking this of grace, if we don't reckon it's grace, then it must be debt. It must be that God then owes us this because we've deserved this. Well, we will never come to a point in which we deserve the goodness of God, the love or mercy of God, or, or the, the power of God in our lives. So we see that to walk worthy is that we are to walk according to. In other words, I can demonstrate or allow the Spirit of Christ to work through me, manifesting His love, not because I store up God's love in my life, but because He loves through me. I've received His love, therefore love can be demonstrated and manifested through me. A great example of this, I think, which I did not mention, but is a great example that is applicable to every instance here, is whenever you think about forgiveness, for instance. Um, we are not commanded to ever forgive anyone because they deserve it. We're not commanded to forgive someone because they are sincere in asking for forgiveness. We're not commanded to forgive someone just feel pity towards them and therefore forgive. Why are we commanded to forgive? We are to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. So we forgive, why? Because we've been forgiven. And if we've been forgiven, then we can forgive. And we can do so recognizing it's not that someone may even deserve forgiveness, but it's that we have been forgiven. And as I've said many times to you, uh, you say, well, you don't understand. You might would say, you, might, you don't understand what someone has done to me or whatever I won't forgive. Listen, there's not one of us in here who've ever been wronged to the same degree that we have offended a holy God. And if we have been forgiven by God through Christ for his sake, then surely we can forgive. So the same thing is true concerning the grace, love, mercy, and power of God in our lives. Our lives are to be lived according to this grace that has been given to us, according to this mercy that has been given to us, according to this love, but then let's not forget, according to this power. Because it's not that, again, we are called to manufacture or to reproduce God's grace or God's love or God's mercy. That would be impossible. But rather, it is that we are to allow the Spirit of God by His power living in us to demonstrate and manifest grace, demonstrate and manifest love, demonstrate and manifest mercy as His power is within us. And that brings us to number three, results of walking worthy of the Lord. Look at what Paul says in verse 10 further. Unto all pleasing, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So since God has sacrificed his son for us and provided his spirit to us, having equipped us with his presence and his power, it would only stand to reason that God requires that we walk according to such grace, mercy, love, and power. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, Paul writes, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But then he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So the supremacy of this power and all that is being done is that God is working this in and through us. That is what Paul is saying. Ephesians 1, 7, 20. 
He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This, by the way, this is very much so akin to what Paul is even praying in his prayer in Colossians. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word, to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Notice what Paul says here. He's praying for this church at Ephesus much uh, in the same similar manner as he did the prayer we're reading in uh, the letter to the Colossians. And he says that you might increase in the knowledge of God. Here he says that you might um, understand having your eyes enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of this, the confidence of this calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And he says the exceeding, to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us, to all believers, according to the working of his mighty power. Now, he says according to the working of his mighty power, but then he explains what power he's talking about when he says, which raised up Christ from the dead. So here Paul is talking about literally this resurrected or resurrection power. And this is the same power, is it not, that dwells within us through the Spirit of God living in us. It is the resurrected life of Christ in us. So understand, the call to walk according to or worthy of the Lord is not a call or an exhortation for us as mere human beings to now attempt to live in some godly sort or manner. No, it's a call for us to rely upon the of God dwelling within us to do that which we otherwise could never do. And so he's saying then that we are to walk worthy, again, not that we'll ever measure up to the grace that's been given to us, but rather that our lives would demonstrate that grace that has been given to us and the mercy and the love of God in Christ by power within us. Notice again, the exceeding greatness of his power, Ephesians 1, to us where we believe according to the working of his mighty power. Do you hear what he's saying? Not just what God has done, the working. He is presently continuing to work as he would conform us to the image of his Son. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, Paul wrote, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Oh, here, he says, oh, God's given us the spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to to the power of God. He says, participate, be, a, be identifying in the very sufferings of Christ. But how do we do that? According to the power of God, that resurrected life that God is living in us through his spirit that dwells within. These verses are only a few, of course, among many, which speak to God's power working in us for his glory and according to his purpose. God not only deserves that such an investment in our lives produce a result that is all pleasing to him. Think about this for a moment. God does not redeem us. As I've said to you even, uh, I believe, on Wednesday evening as we began our study through Ruth, that it's not that God is freeing us from sin in redemption. Most people think about redemption and say, or salvation and or redemption. I'm not saying use them synonymously. I'm saying that there is redemption being bought back to God, there is salvation being delivered from sin. But in being delivered from sin, 
we are also being redeemed by God, meaning being bought out of this bondage of sin. But as many times as you may hear someone speak of that or to that, there are different classifications of this, I guess, which people would consider or categories which people would consider this statement, um, which are incorrect. For instance, there would some who would think to be delivered from the bondage or being delivered from sin or saved from sin means simply that now God has given me a free pass because I no longer have to pay for the consequences of my sin. Now, people who think that way either are terribly spiritually ignorant or just do not know the Lord at all. And I would, I would venture to say most of them, if not all of them, do not know the Lord at all. But yet they would say that this is just some free pass for me, right? Because, oh, I don't have to put God, I ask Jesus in my heart mentality, right? Which I totally disagree with, as you know. That, that, that's never said in Scripture or taught that mentality. When I was four, I asked Jesus in my heart, therefore I'm going to heaven, I don't have to worry about any. It's not salvation nor redemption, either one. But then people also would say, okay, well, I'm free from the bondage of sin or of sin. Which is true, and, and the punishment and consequence of sin. But... That alone is only one side of the proverbial coin. On the flip side of that, you have, if we are delivered from the bondage of sin, Scripture teaches us clearly that in redemption, we are also enslaved to Christ and to God. So he has set us free, but yet in setting us free, he has bound us to himself. So what does that mean? Not only am I set free from the bondage of sin and from the penalty and punishment of sin and from the penalty of sin, but greater yet, I am now set free unto righteousness. I can now, as Christ lives in me, live in righteousness. I didn't say in perfection, but live righteously, which is something I could never do so long as I was on to and in sin because of my own inherently sinful or inherent sinful nature, I would not be able to live in righteousness or even produce righteousness. In fact, anything that we would consider our righteousness, the Old Testament tells us clearly that our righteousnesses are but as filthy rags in the sight of God. So there's nothing appealing to God concerning that which we would offer him. We saw in Philippians 2 through our study, just a, a side note on that, that Paul provides his resume, remember? And that was everything Paul was depending on, his lineage, his works, his religion, his uh, superiority within his religion. And he says, all of this, being a zealot and such, he goes, this was everything I was going to offer to God for righteousness. Say, God, here's my righteousness. And then he says, but I, I count all as loss. I forfeit all of it for the supremacy or superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. For it's his righteousness which, by which I am justified, by which I am set right with God. And so we see then that we're set free from sin, but also set free to live unto righteousness. Well, how is that true? It's all according to the power of God. So I live out righteousness, not by all my attempts to try to keep the law or do or do not do this, but I live out this righteousness by submitting to the Spirit of God dwelling in me, which then empowers to live in truth and in the righteousness of God and that righteousness to be lived out. Again, as Paul says in Philippians 2, also the latter part of verse 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of good pleasure. So God only deserves, as I mentioned, but also demands that such an investment in our lives produce a result that is all-pleasing to him. Why would we think anything less? Why would we think that God would do such a great work according to the resurrected power of Christ, send his Son, Offer his son as an atonement, 
a sacrificial atonement for our sins, and then give us His Spirit that is the very resurrected power of Christ dwelling within us, and then God not require or demand any real result from that. How foolish is that to think such a way? But the beauty of it is this. Now look, if that's all there were to it, that would not be a joyful experience or account at all. Because if that were all there were to it, then that would seem as though, which many people impose upon other professing believers, as though now you bear this burden of living your life in a way that God is pleased, and it's your responsibility to do this, and now you're to go out and try your best to live for God the best you can. But that's not what's being said here. How is this accomplished? According to His power. So, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, faithful is he, or being confident this is the very thing, that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Then in Thessalonians, Paul says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. God has called us to this salvation, to this redemption, to this righteousness, but God is the one accomplishing this, this in and through us. Our responsibility, are you saying you have no responsibility? Of course we have a responsibility. Our responsibility, again, as I tell you over and over again, is that we are to the power of Christ within, the life of Christ within. Because he, you cannot better live the life of Christ than he can live his life in you. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in relation to this thought that God deserves and demands that there is a result to this work that he has done and this, uh, this salvation he has provided. Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, what does that mean, by the mercy? According to the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Did you hear that? That ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. But how do we do this? How do we offer ourselves reasonable service? Again, is genuine worship. That's what it literally means. So the genuine worship that we have to offer to God is a body, a physical body that is sacrificed unto him on a daily, continual basis without ceasing. And all this is according to the mercies of God. Paul says, he doesn't say, oh, I beseech you, you do your best to, to die to It's by God's mercies. We're depending on God who lives, the same God who redeemed us, the same God who has brought us into his family is the same God we depend on to complete and finish this work. I again remind you of what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the progenitor of faith, but he also said the finisher, the perfecter of this faith. It is Christ who began and completes and fulfills this entire work. And so we are dependent on him. So then I ask you this question. What does it look like to live a life that is all pleasing unto the Lord? So we understand what it means to live according to the grace of God, according to the mercy, the love, and the power of God dwelling within us that he has he given us. But then what does this look like? Well, an all-pleasing life God, as Paul explains, will be fruitful every as one increases in the knowledge of God. Spiritual fruit is not something that just happens in one's life. 
It is by the working of the Spirit of God as we rely upon the power of Christ in us that his fruit is realized. In, in John 15, 5, you know these verses. When I am the true vine, of course, my father is the husband. And, and again, I want to remind you, that goes back to Isaiah chapter 5, in which uh, Israel was that shadow, if you will, the son of the true Israel, which is Christ. And he's saying that uh, I had, my father had a, uh, had a, he's a husbandman and that he planted this vineyard. And he, then he goes on to say, but they brought forth wild grapes. And, and in Isaiah 5, he explains in the first five, six verses there that they, they, everything that had been necessary for them to bring forth good fruit, God had provided. It was all present in God's provision. And yet they still brought forth wild grapes or bad fruit is what's being stated rather than that which is pleasing unto the Lord. But then Jesus in John 15 says, in contrast to that, and don't think for one moment, the Jews to which he spoke of that day, though you may not be, they knew exactly what he was saying. I am the true vine. You are called the vine, but you aren't true. I'm the true vine. My father's the husbandman. And then he goes on to explain that the only fruit that can be born through our lives is how? By abiding in him and he in us. And he says in chapter 15, verse 5 of John's gospel account, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For, as he say, without me ye can do nothing. No thing. Now as he's saying, without me, you know, you can't walk. Without me, you cannot breathe. Well, obviously, still that's true. It's God who gives us a life in general and all provision. But he's not speaking in general terms. He is saying... You cannot bear any spiritual and eternal fruit unless you are abiding in me and I am abiding in you. And, and the, the imagery that is given to us here, of course, is that Christ is that true vine in contrast to Israel, the people of Israel, which were not true. They were not faithful. And, they, and that was shadowing the true son who would come, the only begotten son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you find that, of course, Jesus is saying as the vine... It is in the ground and is growing. There are branches that are, are shooting forth from that vine. But the only way that branch will ever bear any fruit at all is that the life of the vine itself is flowing through the branch because as soon as that branch is disconnected from the vine, it has no life source. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot produce any spiritual fruit or eternal fruit or as humankind Man cannot produce any spiritual or eternal fruit apart from the life of Christ flowing within us. And notice, this is not some stagnant life source. There's something that is true. If something is alive, it's always growing. As you think about your own life, you're growing in knowledge, you're growing... Probably not as we... Some of us, as young people, grew in stature. Some of us were a little more stunted. (laughs) But we grow in stature, we grow in understanding, we grow in knowledge, we grow bigger. And if nothing else, we all grow older. But growth is happening all the same. And the life of Christ in us as believers in Christ, we are the branches that have been grafted, Romans 11, into the tree or into the vine. And as being grafted as Gentiles into Jesus, the vine and the tree, now his life is flowing through us, which is now producing fruit. But the branch does not produce anything. The branch just has the privilege of bearing the fruit that the life of the vine is producing 
through it. And that is so important that we understand because without Christ, we can do nothing. Listen, not just meaning if Jesus doesn't dwell in me. No, if Jesus dwells in you, then he, let, let, me, let me say this very clearly. If Christ dwells in you, he lives in you. He is not just some stagnant, eternal being that has just taken residence and taken up room. He is living his life in you. Galatians 2.20, 21. Paul makes that so Bearing spiritual fruit, as Jesus says in John 15, is dependent upon Jesus Christ being the source of life. The Apostle Paul explained in Galatians 5, 22 through 25, but the fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Walk worthy of the Lord. How? Walking in the Spirit. This is what that means. And again, the word fruit, the noun fruit here, is singular, not plural. In English, of course, it could be singular or plural, used in either way. The Greek here is not plural, it is singular. It's a singular numbered noun. So what that means is that it is one fruit. Now, there's many things listed. Joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness. What, what Paul is saying is, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you, then His fruit is present also, which all it's fruit, not yours. And if he is present, then his fruit as well is present. So bearing spiritual fruit not only relies upon us being dependent upon Jesus as being the source of life, but also bearing spiritual fruit results from submitting to the Spirit of God living within our lives. Simon Peter also wrote of this fruitfulness in 2 Peter 1, 2 through 8. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these promises ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge temperance, temperance patience, Patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So spiritual fruit also requires an increase of the God of our lives. Notice he says in verse 3, this is very important. Don't just read where he says in verse 5, beside this, giving all diligence, but understand the root from which he speaks. He says in verse 3, according as his divine power hath given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. When he goes on in verse 5 and mentions, add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, charity. These are not things that we can just muster up of ourselves. These are things pertaining to life and godliness. And he says it's his power that has given us this. Then he says in verse 8, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the scriptures, we discover prayer and exhortation for church. Peace in the knowledge of God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. We find this to be true, and I'm not going to read all of these, but Ephesians 17, Ephesians 3.19, Ephesians 4.13, Colossians 1.10, as we've read the 
2 Peter 1.2. And then fourth and last, just briefly, the provision for us to walk worthy of the Lord. Well, here we go back to this power. We've been dealing with this this whole time, showing you this in the Scriptures according to the power. Without me, ye can do nothing. Walk in the Spirit. Live in... Look at verse 11. Strengthen with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. I'm not going to spend long here. I just want to say to you. First of all, the verb strengthen literally means able and make strong. So enabled with all might according to his glorious power. How are we to be walking according or worthy unto the Lord or worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing? How is that accomplished? How is that realized? What does that look like? Well, we're equipped and enabled with according to his glorious power. Not according to your ability, to your gifting, to your character, to your personality. Not according to your faithfulness. No, we are enabled according to his glorious power. As we're seeing, oh, as we see over and over again, as we've even read this morning throughout the epistles. So God enables us by this glorious power to walk according to his calling and provision within our lives. And we do how with steadfastness and patience, while rejoicing in his provision to do so. So walk worthy. Live according to God's provision of His grace, His mercy, His love, and power within your life. Here's, what, here's what's being said. There is no excuse for any genuine believer in Jesus Christ who has the indwelling Spirit of God within Him. There's no excuse for us to live any way other than according to God's provision in Christ. For we can never give the glory or praise to God that He deserves. How could we ever do that? We'll have an eternity to try, but we'll never give Him all the glory and praise He deserves. However, we can offer to Him a life of praise unto His glory as He demands. So may we do so. Walk worthy. According to your own strength, according to the power of God, according to Christ who dwells within His life, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open the Word of God this day, and we thank you for the revelation of our